We're going to be looking at two texts today. I'm going to start off here this morning with 1 Peter, um, which is on page uh, 1015. So if you just want to grab the Pew Bible and kind of be right along with me, 1015. And then if you want to find and put your finger at, at 105, 105, 150, sorry, I can count to 150. That's where we'll be at. God first. That's our, uh, that's our big talking point, as you, can, as you can see. January 2nd, I went to the gym, and it was packed. Like, standing room only packed. Like, I walked in, and I was like, whoa, are there any weights left unused? I went to the gym this week, crickets. Which was great for me. <laughs> But isn't that how it is? Like we're now in that season uh, where all of those resolutions, whatever you might have had, I'm going to read more books, I'm going to spend more time with my family, uh, I'm going to hit the gym, maybe church and God hopefully fit in there somewhere, wherever it is, whatever it is that you had committed to, you said, I'm going to make this year different. Man, this is where... This is where it gets really tough because now the excitement has wore off and it is up to your conviction and desire and drive and will to kick in and fill up that gap. And so I was thinking about all of this as it relates to God first, which is one of those things we've just been pressing in on. We want God to be first this year because if we put God first, everything else Everything else falls into place. And I began thinking, like, let's go back to the beginning because there's some big questions just about this whole idea of God first. What's it all about? What does it mean? How does it happen? And why do I want this? Why do I want to put God first? Because, again, remember, we recognize right out of the gate that if you're going to put God first, that means that something else is going to get shuffed, shuffled off to second place or perhaps even deleted from your life if you put God first. Why would you want to do that? Enter 1 Peter chapter 2. So look at your scriptures there. Peter, who, uh, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with this name, uh, he was one of Jesus' right-hand men. So he was one of the guys that was walking with Jesus the whole time. He saw everything, and, and and then as Jesus died and rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father, Peter goes out, and he begins planting churches like ours and, and proclaiming. And this is one of the things that he said to one of the churches that he, he was a part of or he had planted. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Which always was a, uh, a metaphor I understood but didn't experience. Esri having the, the, little, the little one that we have. She's going to be a year and a couple year old in a couple weeks, and so she's getting to the weaning away stage, but all you have to do at one point where, you know, she's getting fussy or whatever, and we'll say, do you want some milk? And Ezra will go, huh, 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 right? She's so excited that it's time to snuggle up close to mom. And the, that excitement, that, that innocent excitement is the same kind of excitement that, that Paul, Peter is drawing on here and saying, like a newborn infant, hunger for the pure spiritual milk that you receive from God that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, the story of Jesus, right? We know this, he was rejected by men. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, and you also like him, right? You also are living stones, and we are also being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the most important stone, the foundation of everything else that is being built. And he becomes a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And they, those who don't believe, stumble because they disobey the word, they disobey Jesus. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you did not have mercy, now you have received mercy. And as I was thinking about Portage and ODCC in my own life and, and God first and asking these questions, you know, what is, what is it about? Why do I want it? What is, what, is, what is putting God first going to do? Verse 10 of the section I just read really popped out to me. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Last week, or not last week, a few weeks ago, uh, the UK appointed a minister of loneliness not a minister like I'm a minister, but now there is an agency within their government that is going to help you if you're lonely. Because surveys show, some of you are laughing, you think this is funny. And it is sort of funny. <laughs> but it's also quite sad. Nine million people, as their studies were showing throughout the UK, was nine million people are wrestling with loneliness. And I've talked to a lot of people, i talk talked to a lot of people on a regular basis, and you know what? Many of you in this room are lonely. We're lonely. And as society increases with our disconnectedness, some, I mean, people are remotely going to work. You don't even run into coworkers you don't like anymore, right? Now we can work it all from home, and everyone that we know or the people that we have connections to, we have connections to because we, we see their faces on our screen. But we don't sit in a room and share a cup of coffee. And people are going to increase in that loneliness and they're looking for answers. How can I find the solution to the loneliness that I have? And, and the solution outside of what we're talking about here in Scripture and God and the church is this. Well, let's fund a government agency. Another story that I heard this week that I thought was really interesting is this. Yale's most popular class this year is a class on happiness. One in four of the students at Yale University is taking a class on happiness. Now, I suspect that at least 20% of those are doing it because there's no term paper, right? No tests. But it tells us something very important about what people are after and that they are looking for something. We are looking because we are lonely and we are looking to find ways to satisfy the, hap- the, the desire for happiness that we have because we all want to be happy. We all have this desire to want joy and to want fellowship. And I have the answer for you and you can't find it with the ministry of loneliness and you can't find it in Yale's class. You can find it right here in Scripture. Once you were not a people, once you were divided by all kinds of, of, of other things, but now you have been brought near. And not just brought near because we work in the same place or we have a, a similar, we're rooting for the football team tonight. Who's playing the Super Bowl? I don't know. 
Patriots, I, knew, I, I, I didn't know the Patriots because I saw lots of hate out there about the Patriots. Is that the whole inflatable football thing? Or not inflated football thing? No? Okay. Whatever. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Who's the other team? Eagles. Eagles. Patriots and Eagles. Patriots, Eagles. Patriots and Eagles. Boy, that's a real conundrum. Like, there's, it's like both of those are really American, aren't they? Patriots and Eagles. I was going to pick one, but I, I don't care. Where's it going with that? Oh, right. We're not all together because we're not a people because we were rooting for the same team or we have the same hobbies or any of these kinds, or we grew up in the same area. We have been brought together because God has said, did you notice as I was reading this text how often it said chosen and precious and a priesthood and a people for God's own possession? Like that's, those are beautiful words that really counteract this hunger that we we have. The second line is just as important. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy because we are all, and I contend to you, whether you are somebody who's like, I've been in church my whole life and I, I'm, I, can, I can quote all the Ten Commandments and I've got it all nailed down, or you're like, I'm not really sure I even believe in God, I guarantee you every single one of us has a conscience that testifies against us. Every one of us knows that we have done wrong. And every one of us knows, no matter how often you say to yourself, well, I'm a pretty good person, we know that that is not true. Looking in the mirror, you know that's not true. And we know that we need mercy from one another. How many of you have wronged another person and you need mercy from that other person, right? We have all experienced that. How much more God, who has made the world and placed inside of you the conscience that told you in that moment, I know I shouldn't do it, but I did it anyway. I know I shouldn't say it, but I said it anyway. We need mercy. And the good news, this, this, this answer to that question, why do I want it? I want it because I don't want to be alone. I do want to be happy, and I do want to receive the mercy that I know that I need. And the good news of the gospel is this. God wants you to have all of it. He wants you to have all of it. He wants you to have fellowship. Now, fellowship's one of those words I really love, but it's super churchy. I don't think you use fellowship in any other context. You walk in the doors of the church, we talk about fellowship. You leave the church, we don't talk about fellowship, right? So we'll put it in context for us, right? The journey of life is really difficult, much like the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> if you've seen that movie, and you all should, if not, you can come over to my house and we'll watch it. It's a great movie. Um, but this, this idea of, of drawing together with people, a diverse group of people who are on a common mission, who have received a common calling. And that calling is clear here in this text. It is to be the light of God in the world, to be the ones who declare the excellencies of the glories of God. That's good news. We don't want to be alone. We know we need mercy. God calls us together as a people, gives us the mercy that we need, and sends us out with purpose. That's good news. That's good news. The hunger and the desire of your heart, then I contend, is right here. Right here in God. And right here in the people in this room. Now, you might be asking yourself, Jordan, I thought we were talking about the Ten Commandments today. What in the world does any of this have to do with the Ten Commandments? Glad you asked. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy, page 150. All of this is prefacing 
the Ten Commandments because I think that all of this is written into the Ten Commandments as we are moving through the book of Deuteronomy, a book that we don't probably talk about or think about a whole lot, but it is incredibly deep as we think about the content and the message of putting God first. Deuteronomy just shines out. Now I want to, to remind you that, that also that what Peter is saying here, he's directly taking from the prelude to the giving of the Ten Commandments this line, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and this of course includes the laws of the covenant that we're talking about, you shall be my treasured possession. Did we hear Peter say that? Right? You shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Did we hear that? Right? And a holy nation. Sound familiar? Peter is drawing on, he's saying, hey, you know those laws, all that stuff that you thought, well, that's just law, you know, whatever. That doesn't have anything to do with inspiration. It doesn't have anything to do with what drives my life. Peter says, no, this is formative. This is life transforming. That's what God is always doing, seeking to draw a people to himself, to treasure them. And of course, treasure now to me has to do with two little girls. When I think of a treasured possession, Man, if the house is burning down, what do you grab and save? Parents? Kids, right? Everything else can burn up. I don't care about any of that. As long as the girl, they're my treasured possession. God says, I want you to be that treasured possession to me. And the way that we reciprocate that love, that treasured possessionness that we're given, is we hear his voice and we keep his covenant. Now, let's jump back into some review from last week real quick. Here's the first, uh, the first four commandments. The first one, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a, a graven image, any kind of idol. You don't make an object and bow down before it. You are not to take the name of the Lord in vain, but you're to to uh, keep it as holy because God will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. And fourthly, you shall observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now these commandments are striking in their counterculturalness because if we were thinking about setting up the perfect set of laws, we might begin with something more important, quote unquote, in our mind, like don't kill, don't steal, don't whatever. Uh, but the first four focus on God, putting God first. Because if we put God first, everything else in life will align. If God has the highest honor, I can't put myself in that position and lord myself over you so that I am now able to kill, to, to steal, to commit adultery, to, to covet, to whatever. These are the things that we're going to talk about today. So what we see in this law then is that God is trying to form a people who will put him first. Which brings us to the two points from last week that were really important and we're going to continue. And I didn't put them up there, so my bad. The law, no, I didn't do it at all. I messed it all up. All right, the law first is formative. It forms us into the kind of people God wants us to be. And secondly, our relationship to God must come first because everything else must fall in line, right? That's the kind of the section that we talked about with these first, these first four commandments. Now here's the, the bottom half. And you've heard these before. All the children listen up real well. Zach, looking at you. Honor your, Lolo, don't you laugh. Look up there. I'm just kidding. Those are the only two kids that I spotted right away. Honor your father and mother. 
Has the Lord commit? Did you say amen? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. <laughs> Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you um, all the days of, that you live in the land. All right, then the second one, things that we'd be really familiar with, don't murder, uh, don't commit adultery, which is, is illegal in Michigan, actually. It's a, mis- a misdemeanor, which I didn't know, but there you go. Uh, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. This, of course, adultery uh, is a host of sexual sins. So this isn't just talking about cheating within marriage, but it's, it's the word that kind of says all of the things that are outside of the, the boundaries of what God has set up between a man and a woman for life. So, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor, uh, shall not covet anything. So there's a whole list of things you aren't to covet, but, covet, but uh, there it is, do not covet. These are really interesting uh, these are the parts that we'd be like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. We, we all, are, all the parents are like, yes, very good. This is a little weird right here. It's a little weird. It's interesting. What we see here is that the first half of this, this section, some have argued the first four commandments talk about our relationship to God, and the last half, the second half of the commandments, talk about our relationship to one another. And that's kind of right, but not quite right. Because what it misses is that our relationship to the, to, the, to the law and to God is bound up in the way that we treat other people. So, the law is formative. Our relationship with God is first. Three, the law highlights our responsibility to others in the sight of God. That's really important. That's really important. It isn't just, you shall not murder and you shouldn't steal. Because it's not nice. It is that God has told you not to do this. And we should catch this right here with this, with this, this one right here. How do you prosecute that? So Chris is walking outside today and he's walking to his car and he says, Wow, Jordan's 2008 Grand Caravan is a sweet ride. That's... I want that. I want that car. In fact, I'd punch him and take his keys right now if he was here because it's so awesome. Don't do that. You can borrow it anytime. Don't worry. <laughs> you already have. <laughs> I mean, how do you how do you how do you hold this up to somebody? How do you say, well, I mean, unless he says to me, boy, I was coveting coveting your your minivan, uh, and I say, all right, well, I'm taking you to court. I mean, there's. How does this function as a part of a, a law for people? I mean, even some of the ones that we have about God here. Like, I mean, if you take the name of the Lord your God in vain, that's public. We hear that. Uh, if you make it an idol, I mean, that's obviously public. If you're not keeping this, the commandment or the Sabbath day, that's something that we could obviously see. All these things are visible. And then all of a sudden, the last one is, and your heart, and your will, and your mind. All of these things I judge, not just the things you do outwardly, but what you do internally also matters to me. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 2. So Paul was another, um, another one of the, uh, the New Testament authors, all the way back to the, to the end of your Bible. And he said that there's a day coming, according to the gospel, that God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And that's, that's a scary thing, because as I talked about earlier, 
uh, all of us have consciences that testify against us. How many of you have done something, said something, or thought something that you don't want anyone to know about? Oh, you are all liars. Raise your hands now, right? I see every hand should be up. Because we know that's true. We don't want our secrets to be exposed. And yet this is what the judgment tells us, not just within the New Testament, but what I'm trying to help you understand is that all the way back to the Old Testament, the giving of the first commandments by God to his people included this, I will judge not just what you do, but what you feel, what you desire, what you want. And so that tells us the need of transformation. The need that we have for the wonderful word we read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. You one time did not have mercy, but now, now you've obtained mercy. Because this tells us some, some important things about God and his grace. The first thing it tells us about his grace is that we now know what we ought not to do. I mean, God gives us Ten Commandments and, and then he expands on them, as we'll talk about in, a, in, in the upcoming weeks He expands on them so that we can know how to live our lives so that we do not come under the condemnation. So we don't make the mistakes. And then we begin to to look at our heart and say, okay, now it's not just about not stealing something, but not wanting to steal something. How do I I achieve that? How do I begin to give my life more and more toward to God so that doesn't become a part of it? Because the second piece of grace is this. Whoa, what just... Are you... Looking? Okay. Anyway, we know God desires our salvation. If he lays out for us what you ought to do and what you ought not to do, if he begins to reveal his will to us, it tells us this, that God wants us to have mercy. He wants us to have salvation. He wants us to walk rightly before him. That's good news. That's really good news. And that's one of the important pieces of studying the Old Testament and studying the books of the law is they begin to reveal to us the mind of God and what he wants from us and what he doesn't want from us. So, first, the law is formative. Second, our relationship with God has to come first. Third, the law highlights our responsibility to others in the sight of God. And thirdly, or fourthly, uh, the law cannot be lived alone. There's a mistake that we sometimes make in thinking about the, the things that we do and say. And that is that they don't have impact. We, we have a way of talking about the things, the things that we do is saying as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. You ever heard anybody say that? As long as it doesn't hurt or offend somebody else. As long as it doesn't impact somebody else's life. One of the things that we forget is that every single thing that we do or say has implications for everyone around us. Everyone around us is affected by our behavior, and really not just our, by, by our behavior, but by our desires, by the things that we want. And Jesus talks about this. He talks about how tied together we are as a people. When he talks about the judgment of the church, he separates the church. So here I'm not talking about the rest of the world. I'm talking about the church. In Matthew 25, he separates the church into two groups, sheep and goats. And the goats, he says, you go to hell. And the sheep, he says, you go to heaven. And they say, what was the criteria? Because we all went to church. And he says this to the goats. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was sick, you didn't visit me. When I was in prison, you didn't help me. 
And he says to the sheep, when I was, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I, when I, 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 I was sick, you, you, you came to my bedside. And all of them together say, Jesus, we never saw you once. Because if we had, we wouldn't have made the stupid mistake of ignoring you. Or we would have given you more, right? And Jesus says, if you've done it for these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it to me. Tying our relationship to God to our relationships in this room. John puts it this way in his letter to the churches that he planned. John, another right-hand man of Jesus, puts it this way when he writes to his churches. He says, how can you say you love God and hate your brother or sister in the church? If you can't love the people who you can see right here, if you can't figure out how to, how to give and to receive the mercy right here face to face, how is it possible for you to receive mercy, forgiveness, and say you love the God who you cannot see? You see, it isn't enough that you get your relationship with God right. You have to get the relationships around you right as well. All of these things are tied together, and the Ten Commandments lays this out and displays this for us, showing us these very, very important points. You see, all the way back to the beginning, that whole uh, ministry of loneliness tells us a whole lot more, not just about our desires, but about our needs. We need one another. We need one another because every single one of us has weaknesses, have you ever been in a job interview? I'm going to tie my shoe. Have you ever been in a job interview and they ask you, what's your weakness? Or what's your three weaknesses? What a stupid question. Right? That's the worst question in the world. Uh, you know, when I see something I really like, I tend to steal it. Are you going to hire me? Right? I'm late all the time. Can I have the job? I mean, what kind of question is that? My weaknesses. But we all have those weaknesses, don't we? We all have blind spots in our life. We think that we've got it all figured out. We think that we're right. We all think we're right all the time, which is why we argue with our spouses and our children, right? We're always right, except for we're not. And we need people who stand next to us and say, no, this is a, this is a blind spot in your life. You're, you're missing it. We need that in our life or we will never grow. You will stay the same. You will be the same wretched, miserable person you are for the rest of your life unless somebody says, hey, you know, you're kind of a wretched, miserable person. Let's work on that, right? Really important. Which brings us to the second place. We not only need each other because we have weaknesses, but we need people who will walk with us as we wrestle to perfect ourselves and push away those weaknesses. We need people who are willing to bear with us, who are willing to walk with us, who are willing to be patient with us, who are willing to give us the mercy that God has given us. This is why it's so important that God acted first in Jesus Christ. Because he gave us the mercy to demonstrate what he wants us to be like to others. Which requires three things. All T's. Isn't that a beautiful alliteration? I mean, I just... Somebody pat me on the back as you're leaving, because that's, that's good. Trust, truth, and time. If you really want to grow in Christ, if you really want to grow beyond just the, I'm not killing people, I'm not stealing things, so I'm cool. If you want to really grow in Christ, you need people who are going to walk with you, who you can trust, and who will trust you. 
fact, the scriptures talk about it. Peter talks about this in, his, in that same letter we read from. He said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, have sincere brotherly love for one another with an earnest and pure heart. Trust. Trust is built upon love. Secondly, truth. We have to speak the truth in love. That's a phrase, if you're, if you're not familiar with church, that's one that we love to throw around. We say that all the time. Speak the truth in love. And, you know, no matter how nasty it comes from your mouth, right, we're still speaking. That's, don't do that. I'm just kidding. But we have to be willing to tell the truth. We have to be willing to say, hey, this is, this is where I see a blind spot in your, in your life. I am really afraid of my blind spots because I know they're there. And I need people who are willing to say, I love you, and I think this is there. Am I right? Am I wrong? Can we talk about this? Can we walk with this? And that takes time, doesn't it? This is why church hopping is just the worst thing in the world. Not because you throw churches in tailspin, but because you will never grow. This is why church jumping, when things get tough, is so detrimental to your growth. Because if you are going to actually grow in Christ, it is going to take the same people some time. It takes some time and some knowledge for you to see my blind spots and for me to see yours. For us to run into a conflict. And then once we hit that conflict where I'm mad at you and you're mad at me. Anybody ever had that happen in church maybe once or twice? And we say, okay, well, what are we going to do about this? Well, forget it. I'm going to another church. Well, great. That's a really good, good growth right there, right? I mean, that doesn't work. What we need to do is learn how to bear with one another and say, okay, how can we find forgiveness? And if it takes years to find forgiveness, it takes years. And that growing process is what makes us disciples. Not just fans of Jesus. There's people who like him. Not just people with bumper stickers, but people who are being discipled and transformed. And it takes trust, and it takes truth, and it takes time. And until you are willing to put those three things into it, you will remain in your weaknesses. The Ten Commandments is bearing out so much more than we give it credit for. It is drawing so much more forward. It's not just laying out it's like rudimentary basics, but it's introducing us into the, God, into, into the truth of the God who wants to transform our lives, wants to draw together a particular people who will be his special people. And if they're going to be his treasured possessions, if they're going to be his special people, they have to be a different kind of people altogether than any other people. They have to be the people who are capable of showing the world who God is, which brings us to our last piece. So we've talked about these four. The law, or Torah, that's our fancy Hebrew word for law. The law is formative, it forms us and shapes us. The law puts God first. The law places our responsibility to others, not just in just kind of a generic be nice to one another, but because God is the one who is commanded, and God is the one who judges, and God is the one who is molding and shaping Fourthly, the law must not be lived, must be lived in accountable community. We have to be willing to hold one another to it. And lastly, all of this, all of this is to the glory of God. We lose sight of that. We think that the Ten Commandments are just about how to be nice. They're not. They're about how to bear forth the glory of God. And isn't that what Peter is after? He says, putting away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Put away all these things that are 
that are no good. But rather, recognize that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions, that you may, and here's your purpose, that you may declare or proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Because once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we did not have mercy, but now we have received mercy. And because of this, we need to live as, as, as sojourners and, and exiles and to abstain from the things of the world outside, the passions of the flesh, the desires that, that bring forth the errors that break those commandments, breaking the law of God, to keep our conduct honorable among non-Christians so that if they ever speak evil against you, they still see your good deeds and those good deeds still testify to the glory of God. That's what the Ten Commandments is all about. As we come to a conclusion this morning, I want to highlight that all to the glory of God. I want to send you out all to the glory of God. I want to call to you if you find yourself in the position of being lonely, of having your conscience testify against you and you hear this word mercy and you know you need that word mercy. We have elders that will be down front that would, on either side that would, that would love to talk with you, to pray with you, to walk with you. Let today be the day that we step forward in the glory of God, not just pursuing the letter of the law, but pursuing the deep spiritual truth of the law that we might be the people who not only in word, but also in just our daily lives, declare the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his light. Let's stand and sing to our Lord and God.